0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Brian Wilmore about the new book The Evolution of Everything: The Patterns and Causes of Big History. Big History seeks to retell the human story in light of scientific advances. Humans are biological creatures operating with instincts evolved over millions of years ago, but in the context of a rapidly changing world. And as we try to adapt to new circumstances, we must regularly reckon with our deep past. Brian, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: All right. So can you tell us about yourself and what do you do?
0: So I'm an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, and my particular specialty, um, is human evolution. So I'm a paleoanthropologist, um, and I work, uh, in Ethiopia when I go into the field, uh, and I sort of walk the desert looking for bones.
1: What got you into anthropology?
0: Uh, as a kid, actually, I was always interested in evolution. Uh, I read Stephen J. Gould's books as a kid, uh, in the eighties and um just had an opportunity to go study with some of um some some of the more well known paleanthropologists when I was at Arizona State and it just took off from there.
1: And you mentioned you do a lot of field work. Is that something that you really wanted to do as well?
0: Yes. So I, I really like uh spending time in the outdoors and I really was um excited by the idea of a career where it's both intellectual, um, but also you get to spend a fair amount of time living in a tent.
1: And did you have any mentors along your journey and colleagues as well that so, were very supportive of you?
0: Yes. Uh, I had two, uh, well, actually three. So, um, Charlie Lockwood was my advisor. Um, and he was a very well-known paleontologist. Unfortunately, he was, uh, killed in a car accident when he was still quite young. Um, and Bill Kimball who passed recently, uh, and I've actually uh, worked for a long time with Kay Reed uh, who does um, paleoanthropology with me in East Africa.
1: And you yourself in the position of mentor, what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
0: Um, yeah, it's complicated to be a grad student, actually. Um, the main thing is to um, to have ideas. You need to have ideas and, and usually you get ideas by really, um, diving deep into the subject, uh, um, and figuring out where the interesting questions are that have not yet been answered.
1: Love it. All right. So your latest book?
0: Yes. Uh,
1: Evolution of Everything. That's right.
0: Right. That's correct.
1: So yeah. how did you come to writing this?
0: So I decided to, there was a, a movement called big history. And the idea is to teach history in the context of sort of the the deeper history and prehistory uh, of the earth and the universe. And I decided to teach a class like that at uh, UNLV here. And after a few years, I realized there was not really a textbook that I liked that approached it the way I felt it should be approached. And my students would tell me now and again, you really need to write a textbook for this course. Um, so a couple of years ago, I finally uh, pitched the idea, Cambridge, uh, Cambridge said they liked it and I've been writing it up and it should be coming out, I don't know, fairly soon, I suppose.
1: Okay. So let's dive into the book and where do we start?
0: Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) So, so how did it all begin?
0: Um, well, so the book is, um, it's, it, it goes chronologically. And also it starts with the widest possible perspective and then kind of narrows in. So it starts with the big bang. And then I have a section on geology, then evolution, um, and then animals. And then I work my way into humans. So the idea is to sort of show how humans are a specific example of particular instances of, uh, primates, mammals, the animal kingdom, and even The universe itself so i spent a amount of time talking about the origin of life um and how it is tied to the history of the universe itself so i was trying to connect all of these things um at least in the first half of the book the second half of the book i tackle a lot more sort of what you would call history but from a scientific perspective so it's kind of broken into two parts.
1: So can we start with the very beginning? So with the birth of the universe, so you mentioned the Big Bang. Can you explain how, how it all began?
0: Well, as far as we know, there was uh, a tiny little spot of energy, um, smaller than a subatomic particle, and of course it exploded. And everything that follows is kind of the playing out of that. And I wanted to to try to capture the importance of that for students and explain the way uh in which even the elements themselves are formed so the idea is to show causality for not everything but as much as i could um and i was trying to link some of this to just our our life here so for example the way elements are formed normally they're in stars and you come basically the gravity of the star compresses the atoms and the atoms fuse. And you get fusion reactions, which is analogous to a, sort of the, the fusion explosion. And the elements, um, basically work their way up the periodic table until they get to iron and most stars stop at iron. And so iron is very common in the universe and the earth, uh, is in some ways kind of a, the the center of it is a ball of iron and that's really important because the the rotation of that liquid iron gives us this big magnetic field that protects the earth from solar radiation and without it there wouldn't be life on earth and that's why there's no life on mars because that center has cooled so the fact that nucleosynthesis ends at iron and there's a lot of iron in the universe has led earth to be substantially made of iron and that is what allowed life to exist so i wanted to to show the causes of that.
1: So does this mean that the end of the universe, did you just going to a big slab of iron?
0: Well, uh, a lot of it will actually, because the end state of many stars is iron. They just keep going until they become iron, and then they stop, and then that's, that's it. Um, heavier elements come from supernovas. Large enough stars actually explode, and they generate enough force to fuse iron into the heavier elements. So things like gold or tungsten or uranium, all those things are are rare, um, and they're rare because only the largest stars that explode in a supernova produce them.
1: So many of us would be familiar with the saying that we're all made from stardust. Is this correct? How does it work?
0: Uh, yes, we are. So if you're talking about life, right, that's right. Um, there have been a lot of interesting discoveries recently, uh, but yeah, there are parts of us that we can directly tie to the elements either in space or on earth so they have discovered we are composed of proteins that's what uh, the genetic process produces when you're like your skin your hair all of those things your organs your hormones those are all essentially proteins and they're composed of 20 something amino acids and those amino acids have actually been discovered on meteorites they can be produced by just putting simple chemicals like oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen uh, into a test tube and heating it and run electricity through it. So you can actually produce a lot of the elements of life. And there's actually a recent discovery that one of the bases of RNA um, was discovered on this meteorite that was discovered in Australia. So literally we have this, you know, you have DNA and RNA in you that sort of are the instructions For the building of your body, one of the digits of information was actually discovered on a meteorite. And it's actually possible to synthesize it on the surface of basalt. There was just an article over the summer about that. So, yeah, we are um, just composed of the stuff of the universe.
1: So, moving forwards in time, so from the birth of the universe to the birth of Earth, how did it come to be?
0: Uh, Well... Basically, there was um, a bunch of dust and rock and gas floating through space, and it consolidated. There's a, an interesting process where there's a gravitational force between all things. So if when two things pass each other, um, they are drawn to each other, and if they're close enough, they'll actually start orbiting each other. And enough of that material gets caught up in that, it actually can form a sphere, and so that's how like the sun was formed and the planets and so forth. It's not an accident that they're all spheres.
1: So then how did the life on earth begin? Do we have any idea or which, what are the best sort of ideas that we have? <laughs>
0: well, so there are two main ideas. One is that a meteor hit with some sort of microbial life and then it spread out from there. I mean, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the earth is four and a half billion years old. We're about... One and a half to two billion years, the only life on Earth was really bacteria, photosynthetic bacteria. So whatever started sort of stayed that way for a long time before enough oxygen accumulated and more complex organisms could develop. So, in terms of the actual origin, it is possible that something you know something microbial fell to earth, or um like I said, they've been able to experimentally produce some of the elements of life in, basically in test tubes. So we don't really know, to be honest, they have not yet been able to produce life, but they've produced precursors or parts of life in test tubes. The, the, the problem of course, is that in experimental conditions, you know, you have a few milliliters of material and you have days, weeks, or months to produce it. But the earth had millions of years and the whole earth, uh, in terms of space, so. A lot more interactions could occur naturally than we could reproduce in a laboratory,
1: so as you speak about all of these events, of course, they took took place such long time ago, like four and a half billion years for uh, the first life to occur. What are some of the ways that we can study these events, and especially the birth of the universe?
0: Uh, well, so in terms of dating it, of course they it's astronomy, so they they look at the stars and What they do is they look at the movement that they see among the stars and they basically calculate backwards, both in time and space. So you just watch something moving and you calculate the the direction and the speed. And then you say, okay, it must've come from this place. Uh, and, and it would have taken X amount of time to reach where it is. And they basically do that for all of these stars and they calculate backwards. So obviously there's a lot of math involved in that. When it comes to the earth, they can actually, because we have the materials here, we can radiometrically date the earth. And the same, the same we do the same with the moon. So you can take these really small crystals called feldspars, and when they are formed, they start a radioactive decay from uranium, one isotope of uranium to another isotope of uranium, or from one uh, isotope of uranium to lead. And you can look at the ratios of the elements to each other and calculate how long it has been since they formed. It's the same principle as carbon-14 dating.
1: So you mentioned that we have these building blocks for life that we we can sort of make them in a test tube with some electricity and stuff like that, but we still cannot like make life from scratch. So how credible are those ideas of panspermia uh, that the life has arrived on a meteorite, for example?
0: Well, I mean, people debate about, scientists debate about this. So, um, but we're, I, in my opinion, we're still early on in understanding this. Really, we've only been experimenting. There was one experiment in the fifties called Miller-Gouray, and then not too much for a while, and then they've started picking it back up again. Um, they have produced RNA in a test tube in the lab. So that's one component, but literally the scientists all over the place are, are doing it right now. So, you know, to give a, a statement about the state of the art would, actually probably be inaccurate because I don't know what thousands of scientists are doing, but they are definitely working on this. There's a whole field called astrobiology that studies this and they come out with some amazing things all the time.
1: So as the life moves on, so um, what are the most interesting or important milestones in the evolutionary history of life?
0: Uh, So uh, that photosynthetic bacteria built up oxygen in the environment. And we are dependent on that oxygen. As you know, plants produce oxygen. So these were single-celled organisms that were doing what plants do. And as oxygen built up at first, it kind of soaked into the land and, and um, basically bonded with the iron that's in the ground. But over time, enough was produced so that there was this breathable atmosphere. And so when you think about something like the Cambrian explosion, where you had all these amazing uh, arthropod style animals appear in the fossil record, that was entirely dependent on, you know, a billion and a half years or maybe two billion years of oxygen generation on the earth. So the oxygen generation is probably the most important thing, even though it was a long process. But once it built up, then life was raring to go. And so as soon as we get complex life, um, which is, you know, reflected in the fossil records and the Cambrian explosion from then on, life just goes everywhere. Animal life just appears and fills all different kinds of niches all over earth. So in terms of the broad view of life, that's probably one of the major ones. And then of course, um, the evolution of fish was a big one, and then the evolution of land animals. So these things kind of proceed as you would expect them to, um, and then of course we are land animals. So we are dependent on that event occurring. So there were these big transitions that occurred, but they really required the previous event to occur. So land animals could only appear once fish had the appropriate skeletons that could support weight, and that required fish to evolve, um, and that required vertebrates to evolve. So you see this, this as you go back. These important events are dependent on the previous event. And that was actually one of the, The major points of the book is that all these things occur that you learn about when you're a high school student or a college student, but they're linked causally. So every event is, in essence, dependent on previous events. So I wanted to show that link of causality through time, all the way back into all the way uh, forward into the present.
1: And many of our listeners would be familiar with some of those arthropods uh, yeah, and, and insects that you mentioned, and they were very huge. So how come they're not huge anymore?
0: Ah, well, um, the, the the ones in the Cayman Explosion actually weren't as big as you think. Um, so they were in water, first of all, and we have big arthropods in water. If you look at a king crab, it's a, it's a big animal. In terms of land arthropods, There was a period of time when there was an oxygen spike. It's about 300 million years ago. Arthropods are dependent on respiration through their surface. They don't have lungs. And also they generally don't use iron. They use copper, uh, as the binding element in their blood for oxygen and copper binds with oxygen at about a quarter of the efficiency. Um, so copper is not as efficient as iron. And that limited how big they could get because they literally could not get oxygen to the the cells all over their body, except for this period, uh, about 300 million years ago, when there was a spike in oxygen levels throughout the environment. And then there were big millipedes, you know, like six feet, eight feet. Um, dragonflies as big as, uh, condors. I mean, that was kind of, would have been an amazing time. Scary, obviously, but, um, but then the oxygen levels dropped off again. And all the, uh, terrestrial arthropods had to get small.
1: So then as we start seeing the animals emerge, so how did the dinosaurs begin and the end, I suppose, do we know?
0: Well, sure. Dinosaurs are reptiles and, um, there was a big extinction event. Uh, the first animals to come onto land were amphibians and there were some big amphibians, I mean, like we think of amphibians as like frogs or something like that. Um. But there was a a big extinction, uh, maybe the the biggest extinction in our history. Um, probably it was about three hundred, more than three hundred million years ago, and it trimmed back ninety five percent of life on Earth, as far as we know. Um, and that opened up ecological space for other animals to fill in. And this is a recurring pattern, also that extinctions enable subsequent radiations of animals. So you had the extinction of many of the amphibians, obviously some survived. Um, This is called the late Devonian extinction. And this allowed reptiles who were marginal up until that point to fill in. And and because they are more adapted to a terrestrial lifestyle and can lay eggs on land, that's a major adaptive shift. They didn't have to go back in the water. That allowed them to out-compete amphibians and so they filled the land but then there was another extinction uh 65 million years ago and this is most people learn about this one this is the kt extinction the meteor hit in what is now the gulf of mexico and wiped out the dinosaurs and it didn't eliminate the reptiles but all the large reptiles were made extinct um small ones and then obviously the birds uh survived so yeah we do actually know the the origin of the dinosaurs which Mm -hmm. were reptiles i anyway dinosaur is this strange term that scientists don't use we tend to use it because it's convenient we in our mind eye, we tend to think of these big lizardy things roaming the landscape but they're actually two main groups and they were weren't that closely related they lived in the same place at the same time but in the same way that right now marsupials and placental mammals you know some people might use the term mammal to describe them both but they're really be re- fairly distantly related groups um we share some anatomy with them. It's the same with the dinosaurs. There were two main groups and um, one of them went entirely extinct. Um, That was the one, if you think of like Triceratops or Stegosaurus, that whole lineage went totally extinct. The lineage that had like Velociraptors and T-Rexes, that one survived as the birds.
1: So then how did this this mammal radiation begin?
0: Well, mammals have adaptive advantages over um, reptiles. Live birth means that more of the offspring are likely to survive. Nursing means that more of the offspring are likely to survive. Um, they can regulate their body temperature. Uh, and so they can fill in other types of environments that reptiles don't really go into. So things like cold. So mammals just were more well adapted. And so when the KT extinction kind of wiped the slate clean and there were small reptiles and small mammals, small mammals filled in a lot of the same ecological niches that the dinosaurs had filled. So large herbivores, small herbivores, insectivores, large carnivores. All of those niches are now filled by mammals that were once filled by dinosaurs.
1: And how did the lineage that led to us basically begin? Where do we draw this line? We can start thinking about primates perhaps, or ancestors to primates.
0: Sure. Primates actually predate the KT extinction, although they were tiny little, they, they look like shrews essentially. Um. Yeah, primates have this unusual adaptation. They're arboreal, um, they have a few unusual traits. Primates, including you and I, don't have claws, they have fingernails. Um, and a, and so the first primates were these little sort of grabby insectivores, probably living near flowers, so the, the evolution of the flowering plant was pretty important for primates. So as you know, all kinds of animals uh, go to flowers to take pollen, and primates might have hung out near there and grabbed the insects. And we look at the oldest primates or what we think of as the, I hate to use the word primitive, but sort of, um, appear to look like, uh, fossil earliest fossil primates. Things like the, the lorises and galagos, they are small, um, insectivores and they live solitary lives in the trees. And that's probably what primates were like early on. Um, but another lineage. Uh, of primates developed, and that is um, the monkeys and apes. And so we really are like that. So we're diurnal, nervous was daytime adapted, large bodied social animals. And so if you look at a monkey, uh, or an ape, or a human, we're all that, essentially.
1: And then how did our species evolve? Is this correct to call it species, like homo species?
0: Well, I mean, first you had earlier lineages, lineages of humans, so for example, Australopithecus. And Australopithecus was very successful all over Africa and lived for several million years. Uh, and there were earlier um, than, you know earlier what we call hominids than that even. Uh, we don't have a great fossil record before about four and a half million years ago. The geneticists tell us that we split from the apes somewhere in the neighborhood of seven million years. There are a few candidate fossils around that time, but they are controversial. Um, So some people argue that they are simply apes, some people argue that they are hominins, Um, but the fossil record isn't really good enough probably for us to determine, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to around 4 million years ago and then 3 million years ago, you have a really good fossil record. that, That particular section of the human fossil record is pretty amazing. If you study paleontology, I mean, you really don't get the large numbers of individuals in a lot of species. And so if you think about Australopithecus, it's not just a handful of fossils. You can, when you look at, um, let's say apes today, let's say you want to study gorillas. You go out and you don't study one gorilla. You study males and females, you study the young and the old, and you try to get a sense of the variation in the population. Once you get to Australopithecus, we can actually infer some of those things because we have a really good fossil record for a couple of Australopithecus species. So you could actually, we actually know quite a bit about those. Um, Now they predate Homo. Homo came along sometime between two and a half and three million years ago. Um, And that was a change to another lifestyle, really. So Australopithecus lived like an ape. And if you had seen Australopithecus, even though it was bipedal, it would have looked like an ape to you. So it was probably short, hairy, had long arms, would have been quick to jump into a tree. Now it could stride, excuse me, bipedally like you and I do, but otherwise it would have looked like an ape. And it had a fairly small brain, maybe 10 or 15, 20% bigger than an ape. But when you get to homo, the brain gets much bigger and we acquire adaptations to eating meat, uh, making stone tools. And then as time goes by, we our body changes so we get long legs so we're much more committed to the ground we get bigger uh, and we start hunting uh, regularly so by the time you get to homo erectus humans are pretty efficient hunters and adaptable to all kinds of environments across the globe and that's when they spread out from africa and went to asia like china uh, indonesia um, up into europe so that that homo adaptation led us to this broadly adaptable species that we became.
1: So you mentioned other hominins like Neanderthals, for example, and we are starting to learn that those and Denisovans, they're much closely, closer relate, related to us than we initially thought. So why is that? Is it because we have more data from them?
0: No, th- this is because of genetics. I mean, yes, in, in that sense, the data is, uh, is better. So we can get DNA as far back as about 600,000 years ago. Um, and so Neanderthals lived in Europe from about 250 to a little under 50,000 years ago. So we, you know, they are uh, collecting Neanderthal DNA all the time from the fossils. And they actually have pre-Neanderthals that they can extract uh, DNA oh, wow. from. So we can determine the relationships among all these groups. And the Denisovans, they're only known from just a few tiny little bone fragments that people did not think would be interesting until they ran the DNA and said, holy cow, this is a group we had never seen before. So we don't actually know what they look like at all. All you have is this teeny little bone chip, but they are not us and they're not Neanderthals. So yeah, the geneticists have really, really moved this field forward. Uh, and they are the ones that tell us that humans and Neanderthals separated about 500,000 years ago. So that, that is about, you know, and we only have human fossils back to about 300,000 years ago, modern human fossils and Neanderthals no older than 250. So in theory, there's this fossil record. We just have not yet discovered it that goes back to 500,000.
1: It's mind boggling to think that our evolution in history is not a straight line. It's more like a bush rather than a tree.
0: Oh, most definitely. So if you see those t-shirts, you know, that, that have like a, I don't know, it has like an ape and then a Australopithecus and then Homo, you know, like this sequence. And usually the person in the end is some sort of human, you know, who's out uh, sitting at a desk or carrying a jackhammer—it's kind of like a joke, right? So, and and that's how Victorian scientists thought—they they would have pictured human evolution as some sort of line that led from something apy to something like us. But in fact, yes, it was this really sort of branching event. And if you were on in Africa, uh, um, let's say two million years ago. There would have been at least seven species of human alive at the same time. And now we have, I think it's almost 30 species of human, all of whom have gone extinct except us. So yeah, I mean, it is, definitely a a bush. It's a radiation.
1: So as we move even more forwards in time and closer to us, then what really set our ancestors out? So you mentioned like bigger brains and hunting. So how come we we actually the ones who survived throughout time?
0: Well, people argue about this because there is no conclusive piece of evidence. My suspicion is that it's our linguistic ability. So when if you look at Neanderthals who are contemporaneous with modern humans, they are not making the sort of representative art that we see with early humans. So you can go to you know Africa, Australia, Europe, any place, where there were really early uh, modern you know, homo sapiens, um, you know, 30,000, 40,000 years ago, you'll see art and you would recognize it as the kind of art that humans make today. And But if you look at the Neanderthals, for example, you just don't see that. I mean, there are a couple of pieces that people propose as candidates for Neanderthal art, but they are not representative and we're not sure that Neanderthals made them. We're not even sure that they're art because they don't look like art, the way our art looks, they're not, they're not the figures. So my suspicion is that that is tied to our, that representative ability is linked to language. And you can imagine the enormous advantage you have if you have language. So let's say, uh, someone says, oh, I went over the next hill. There are a bunch of deer. Um, we can catch them if we go out before it gets dark. That amount of information is enormous but really could not be communicated effectively if you don't have language, the way we think of language, or if things are dangerous, you could be specific, go to the left, not to the right, because there's a leopard on the right side, but it's pretty safe on the, on the left. So all of this is this enormous amount of information that would have given us a huge advantage over anything else that came before uh, Neanderthals specifically.
1: And then what do we know about the earliest societies? How did we came together in groups?
0: Ah, yeah. So for most of the history or prehistory of humanity, uh, we lived as foraging people's hunter-gatherers, um, and there are a few societies that are still like that. So there are a few Yanomamo tribes that are like that, um, in Africa, the San, um, or the Hadza, um, cling to that traditional lifestyle. But basically we would have been that way, let's say the very, you know, From the origin of humans, let's say it goes back 500,000 years to, let's say, 10,000 years. So the vast majority of our time, we were just living as hunter-gatherers, accessing resources that the environment provided. So you could hunt, um, you could get the berries, you could get honey, um, seeds, all these kind of things. Um, But the population on Earth filled in every... Place that there was, so there was no more place to go, and population started to increase. And once you get beyond a certain population size, you can't support it as a hunter-gatherer. There just aren't enough deer in the forest to feed everybody. And some people figured out how to domest- figured out how to domesticate a few grains, like wheat or rice or barley, um, potatoes, corn, um, some of these pl- plants that could be domesticated. And they realized that they could live off of those in a regular way. And that allowed early societies to just develop higher population densities. And once you get a lot of people, you have to have social organization. And that's, that is the origin of uh, complex societies. It's basically dependent on population density. This actually is one of the things I was trying to get out of the book is to show something like population density is a major driver of a lot of prehistory and historical events. And so, you know, we see these transitions and they occur. And then later historical events are also dependent on population density. When you see famines, things like that, wars, um, that's when people run out of resources uh, and that's because there are too many people and there's not enough food, uh, in the space in which they live.
1: So how did those early societies uh, tackle these issues of maybe having, you know, not, not enough food? for everybody to uh, to feed?
0: Uh, well, one way is to uh, develop farming technologies, improve on those, um, things like the digging stick and then later on the plow and domesticating animals that could pull a plow. Um, and then, you know, metal tools that won't wear out as quickly or, you know, will turn over the earth faster. That's that's one way and that, that was probably the most common way. But um, another way they do it is by looking over at their neighbor and seeing if your neighbor has something that you want. And if they do, then you go over there and you take it. And Mm. you know this is probably the origin of warfare as well, although we do know that um, forging societies even today engage in something analogous to warfare. So that the urge to take something from someone is pretty deep. I would say it goes all the way back.
1: And was this? Stratification into hierarchical society necessary for the society to prosper?
0: So I would say yes. And, uh, this, this is, um, due to the fact that if you think about it, a small society, and maybe you can think of your high school class or people in your high school, you know, you, there are, there's only a finite number of people, uh, whom you can know. So in a small society, a leader could consolidate a political information, uh, political power rather, by knowing what everybody wants and trying to accommodate people and settling disputes. And you could do that in a small group. And these are the classic uh, big man societies where one person who's particularly good uh, at politicking rises to the top. But once, but there's an upper limit on that. Our, our evolutionarily, our brains seem to be capable of... Um, about 100 understanding about 150 relationships so that many people so you need you can know who's friends with whom you know who are not friends who owes uh, whom a debt um, who's angry all the time who's peaceful all this kind of information can be maintained in your brain up to about in the neighborhood of 150 people some some have better political brains and, and some lesser but once you get a society with thousands of people there's just no way for all that information to be in one brain. And so you have to organize the society into hierarchies just so things can happen. So in a hierarchical society, the person at the top knows the next tier down. And then each of those people have a group of people that they know that they can instruct to do. So if you think about like an early leader, I don't know, building a pyramid or something like that, um, those are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people involved in the job over the whole length of the job. You know, you would have superintendents who would organize the foreman and the foreman would know the actual workers because there's no way for the leader to actually know each, every worker and how to, and who has what skill. So it's sort of an information theory model. And I think that, that best explains why it's necessary. Of course, people want power. That's a, an understood thing. And so people will try to acquire it. But it's enabled in a society like that.
1: So it's like a phone tree.
0: Uh, it's kind of like a pyramid actually, is the way I think about it. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, the person at the top knows of the layer of people below who knows, the, you know, and each one of those people knows a group of people below that and so forth on down.
1: So let's move to the industrial age. How did we arrive here and what did them bring us?
0: Ah, uh, well, um. Yeah, that that, that, is, that that is one of the most interesting transformations. So the industrial age, um, it was a way of making products more efficiently. So if you think about, and I use this example in the book, imagine uh, it's 1720 and you want a pair of shoes, you go to a cobbler and you say, I'd like a pair of shoes, he measures your foot uh, and he says, okay, come back in let's say, two weeks or something like that, and I'll have a pair of shoes. And this cobbler has to take you know, the drawing and, and then cut out the leather and put it on last and stitch it all down. And all this happens by hand. And if the cobbler has an apprentice, some of the work gets done by the apprentice, but everything is done with hands. And you can only be so efficient. In other words, it takes a certain amount of time to make a pair of shoes. And if you want two pairs of shoes, it takes twice as long because the person has to do twice as many acts. There's no way to add efficiency to that really. Whereas once the industrial age starts, you have a series of machines, each one does a specific step, and so it's easy to replicate those steps. And so you can hire a worker who has minimal training and have to uh, be an apprentice for years as a cobbler, and you just teach that worker how to pull this one lever to press out the shape of the shoe. And what happens is that once you have invested all your money in the factory and the equipment, making more shoes is fairly easy because Mm -hmm. each step is a repetition, you know, and the one worker, it's just as easy for that worker to crank the lever a hundred times as it is 50 um, because there's no real skill involved in it and it's not a big time commitment. So as soon as the industrial revolution happens, products just become cheap. In other words, they become really affordable because the big investment is not in the training of the cobbler, it's in the building of the factory. And once you build the factory, you want to use it to produce more shoes. And that pushes down the price of shoes. So, and that's basically how everything is made today. You know, the, the more of a thing there are, the cheaper they tend to be because they're simpler to manufacture. It's just a repetitive process. So you can scale up with the industrial revolution. And then, Once you have this industrial revolution and you're making a lot of products, um, this then creates the need for marketing because you need to sell those products. So the transition from the sort of consumer driving uh, the creation of products, like the people needing shoes would go to the cobbler and say, I need shoes, make shoes. Once you have factories, you can produce a lot of shoes cheaply. So really, at that point, you need to find the marketplace. So this then creates uh advertising and and the modern marketplace where people are competing uh in this marketplace with their different products and they say my my shoes are cheaper my shoes are better they'll you can jump higher run faster so that it creates this huge transition in the relationship of people to the objects that they use
1: yeah that makes me think who decides how many shoes we actually need
0: Yeah, no, there are people whose job that is, and they say last year we sold 1.2 million shoes uh, and Nike's coming up with a new model. We need to compete with it. So we're going to make 1.5 million in these different colors. Like literally there are people that make a lot of money doing exactly that.
1: So how did those transformations influence our society on organizational level and perhaps politics as well?
0: Well, the industrial revolution is what enabled the middle class, for one thing, uh, because there were people, you, you could go to a factory and get a job and make enough to survive. I mean, early on, factory conditions were poor, but the money was much, much better than uh, what they had been earning on farms. So if you, if you go back to, say, 1720 again, 90-plus percent of uh, most societies people were living on farms, working in farms, and they just were not making enough money. They were making enough money to feed themselves mostly. But once um, industrial production starts, first of all, they don't need as many people on the farm because tractors do the work of 50 people. Mm. Um, but also um, you could go to a factory and let's say you moved to London at the beginning of the industrial revolution. There might be 20 factories and they're competing for you. They want you to work there. So they're going to offer you more money than you would have made at the, uh, you know, in the farm. And this enabled a lot of people to acquire capital really for the first time. And one of the more interesting aspects of this is this is the first time women acquire capital, and from that they acquire political power. So before the Industrial Revolution, women were sort of uh, part of the home economy, but a lot of factories employed a lot of women, and those women could acquire enough money to Live independently; they weren't, didn't have to have a family if they didn't want one. So you could go to London, get a job at a factory, and live a life, live a life of a single, independent woman for basically for the first time in history. And from there, um, the organization of those women um, to you know try to acquire the right to vote and other you know um, like protection in the workplace, that sort of thing. That all starts. So even though we tend to think of early industrial revolution as this horrible place where you know, there were child workers falling into machines and getting killed, and that absolutely did happen, um, it also gave a lot of people spending power for the first time. And the other thing was is that the products they wanted to buy were suddenly cheaper because they were made in a factory. So they had more money and shoes were cheaper. So people could afford more than one pair of shoes every few years. So it really transformed the world in a pretty substantial way.
1: So then we move towards the information age, is it? So how did this epoch or era begin?
0: Uh, well, I mean, um, it's really an extension of the industrial revolution. Um, it's just a way of, um, making more machines that do more things. So your computer, well, if you go back to like the, the plant or the factory that made shoes, there was a machine that, that made shoes essentially, and you had to sort of connect the machines together. So now we have machines that allow us to communicate and write documents. And so all of this, all of these things that we do, and we still make shoes and we still write documents, it just allows this dramatic, dramatic increase in efficiency, um, and connectivity. So when I you know, do my research, I almost never go to the library, maybe twice a year now. Uh, All the journals are online and I can do all my research for my house. So it just increased the productivity, you know, by a few factors. So everything is faster that having said that, um, excuse me. Having said that we are only the beginning of the information age and the big change will occur when artificial intelligence develops, you know, matures. Like we have a, a little bit of it now, so. Facial recognition uh, technology, for example, you know that that allows the Chinese government to know what people are doing, and that is, we would say, bad. You know, but artificial intelligence also is helpful in some ways. They use it in medicine for diagnostics and so forth. The problem will be if artificial intelligence uh, develops to the point where it's making real decisions, and we can't see how it's making those decisions because um if like basically chaos theory says that once you have enough moving parts in a system it's not really possible to predict some of uh, the decisions that will be made and that that i think would be the danger uh because once you have enough processors you know things will occur and you'll say oh, we, did, we didn't program it to do that but that's chaos theory you know it once you have enough moving parts predicting the outcome can be pretty difficult right now it's it's not a problem but like i said i mean we we have not really developed a you know practical quantum computers once we do it's hard to predict where it's going to end up let alone this idea of sort of consciousness in the computer if that happens really all bets are off
1: so yeah you're completely right it's impossible to predict the future so then i was wondering so what would be Your vision for the future, what do you think we should be going, going towards?
0: Well, one thing that's going on that I think is important is that demographics are driving populations down. So once you educate women and and the education of women has really taken off across the world, women just have more children, I have, sorry, have fewer children, um, and that demographic effect is being seen all across the world in every continent. So the population is still growing, but. They predict somewhere around 2050, 2070, basically the planet will peak and there will be fewer and fewer people. And we're actually seeing this in some countries. Um, Japan, Italy, some of the more, uh, in developed countries, women just have decided they don't want to have children or as many children. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens to societies as populations decrease. It has some really interesting effects in countries like Japan, where there are whole neighborhoods in cities that are emptying out because as the elderly people die they don't have they, they didn't have children and there aren't people to, to fill into those those homes and so they just are empty uh, Tokyo is the only part of Japan that's actually growing demographically uh, and they are going through this sort of crisis there because they don't know what's going to what it's going to be like in 50 years and much of the world may go through that, That same process as well. So that that's really going to be interesting to see unfold, and I I have no idea. But it will be good for the environment, obviously, because people use the environment, Uh, and the environment is going to be a big determinant. You know, if the polar ice caps melt in some substantial way, large parts of the world will be underwater. Um, If it gets hotter, there will be places where people won't want to live. Uh, Working in our favor will be technology. So we may. Let's say we develop some sort of fusion technology, then we'll have electricity and we can cool places so people can live even where it's hot and they can transport themselves without polluting the environment. So it really, really de- I mean, I, I wouldn't want to predict anything, but it will certainly be interesting to see how it works itself out. Um, I, I suspect uh, it will be recognizable though to most of us. Is
1: it fair to say that the issues we are facing nowadays are radically different? to what our ancestors were facing.
0: I would say yes. Uh if you look at our ancestors, their concerns were all day to day. And in fact, uh the human brain it's not really didn't really evolve to think long term because imagine you're homo erectus 2 million years ago. You, you know, you have there is no advantage to maybe to being able to think very far into the future because everything that happens to you, you have to feed yourself daily. You have to get water daily. Primates need water every day. Um, most of you, of what you're doing is just the here and the now. And that explains some of our decision-making. So, you know, if you tell someone, uh, we need to close the coal uh, mine because if we don't, in 50 years or in 100 years, the temperature of the Earth will rise to levels that are unacceptable. That person will be thinking, you know what? I need that job now. Like I, I want, I need my paycheck this weekend. I need to feed my family. I need to make a payment on my truck. I got to pay my mortgage. So don't tell me about, about the future, right? I don't, I don't want to hear it. And that is one of the things that humans have been working against: is the fact that we tend to think in the now, and it, and there are people who are, can plan for the future. But, um, you know, the majority of people who vote, um, need to be shown how to think about the future. And so that's going to be a challenge, I think, because evolutionarily our brains are not adapted for that. We, we, we do certain things well, problem solve, for example, but other things the human brain does poorly and planning for the long term is definitely one of them.
1: So as we just galloped through uh, some of our evolutionary history, which is absolutely fascinating, I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit more on the bigger picture and from everything that you researched, what kind of lessons and takeaways can we apply from our past, basically?
0: Well, I, I'm generally optimist. I, I think that we have learned a lot from our past and have improved our you know, our world, uh, not environmentally, but for people generally. So if you went back, I don't know, 500 years, a thousand years, 2,500 years, there would have always have been, um, a much greater difference between the rich and the poor. So, you know, the, the abolition of slavery is a recent thing in human history. Really it's a 19th century event. Before then it didn't occur to people that slavery is bad. Um, and it has existed, you know, they existed in virtually every society uh, up until about 1800. So the fact that the whole world, even though there is some forms of slavery still left, the world acknowledges that that is bad. The world also now acknowledges that democracy is probably the the best form of government. Even even countries that aren't democratic will often put the word republic or democratic in their names as a sort of tacit acknowledgement but that they would like to be democratic or they should be democratic. Uh, So I feel like um, things have improved. You know, the idea that we would take away the right of women to vote. I mean, that's just would never, ever occur to anyone. But, you know, women really couldn't vote until 100 years ago and anywhere on earth. So I think that in general, um, the, the trends of the Enlightenment have caught hold. And are self-evident, and are moving the country forward. It it is it is a more peaceful country, even though at any given moment there are wars. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine, sort of calling back to some of the fascist totalitarians of the 1930s. But the world is outraged at it, and they have stepped up. They haven't let it progress. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you know Ukraine is getting weapons from the Western world that's that's a big improvement over what happened in the 30s, um, and. I don't know i think in general it will be halting but we do seem to be progressing i mean in 1700 there were no democracies and now there are i don't know 75 democracies or something like that i mean it's not perfect and you still have to push but the trends are in the right direction even if there have been some hiccups of late that's my that's my feeling about it i feel like we have learned a lot of the lessons i guess is what i'm saying
1: And what discoveries in your research for writing your book, The Evolution of Everything surprised you the most?
0: Ah, um, I guess the role of, it's going to sound boring, but the role of large numbers really drives so much of what happens. Um, large numbers of, uh, products manufactured, large numbers of people who need to be fed, large numbers, large numbers of voters, um, large numbers drives everything, um. And I guess I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that because when I study, you know, fossils, we look at, you know, a handful of them, you know, populations of 50 or a hundred, something like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it is amazing how, and, um, how complexity and chaos theory, which are dependent on large numbers of things interacting really do tell us how nature works. You know, I mean, ants, for example, uh, you know, ants in large numbers do amazing things. You know, they build bridges, they build these huge nests, they engage in something analogous to animal husbandry when they capture aphids and milk them. Um, but a single ant can't do any of those Any of those things. Really, a single ant can't do anything. So things really unfold once you have large numbers of things. And I guess that was one of the more interesting observations I acquired doing this work.
1: And if you could time travel, what would be your time period of choice to go and visit and, you know, have a look around?
0: Uh, oh, for sure. I would want to go back to look at the dinosaurs. I mean, how, how could you not? <laughs> I mean, you'd want to be able to hide, obviously, cause there are a lot of things trying to eat you, but it just, um, those large animals must have been magnificent, um, and it's a shame. I mean, the largest land elephant now, land animal now is an elephant. Um, nowhere near as big as some of those big sauropods. I mean, that must've just really been amazing. So that's when I would go back
1: perhaps you would have needed a time machine that could fit one of those shark cages just so yeah. you don't get snatched.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you want an armored one for sure, you know, like a tank or something.
1: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So what are you currently working on? What will be your next project as well?
0: Uh, well, I work in East Africa, so we have some discoveries. Um, and because of COVID, we weren't, I, I work in Ethiopia, so we weren't able to go to Ethiopia and describe them. Um, and they're sitting in the museum right now waiting for me. Uh, hopefully in the next month, I'll be able to go um, study them, write, write them up and publish them. Um, and then if circumstances are right, we will go back into the field in January. So that's that's the next thing I would be working on.
1: And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Uh, the book is published by Cambridge University Press. So I guess they could go there or they can Google me. Brian Vilmore, um, and I'm at uh, University of Nevada Las Vegas so I would say Google's probably the easiest way to find out what I'm doing I, I have a, a lab page and I list a, my research and their photograph so some of the work in East Africa and so forth so that would probably be the easiest thing
1: excellent well thank you so much for joining me today
0: my pleasure <laughs> I'm gonna do it.